think my goal tonight will be for you to want to spend some time in the book of Isaiah. Um, his style is unlike any other book in the Bible, very colorful, um, a lot of imagery, a poetic nature to what he, what he gives, but this great theme of salvation, the good news of salvation. And so his name means salvation of Yahweh. In fact, if you look at the, the title of the book, his name, uh, and you look at it, it looks like the Hebrew verb to save, Yasheng, with the shortened form of Yahweh at the end. So Yasheng Yah. That's what it looks like, okay? It's actually very similar to Joshua's name. That's the, the Old Testament version. Jesus would be the New Testament version. Only the shortened form of Yahweh is at the front of the word. So um, Jesus' name means Yahweh saves, but Yahweh, the Yah, is at the front. Um, so Isaiah has a lot of parallels in what he focuses on to the theme that we see in Jesus' life. The prophet Isaiah started his ministry, in his words, in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was a good king. He, he um, reigned for some 52 years. Um, he was very successful, but he got proud and was struck with leprosy, uh, died as a leper, really reminding us that, that you still need to honor the Lord and be reverent toward him, even if he's given you great success. Well, Isaiah served through the reigns of Jotham, who was also a good king, the son of Uzziah. He uh, reigned some 16 years, uh, and then he served another 16 years through the reign of Ahaz, Jotham's son. Ahaz was a bad king. And then he also served as a prophet through the reign of Hezekiah, who was a good king, some 29 years. And you remember his life was extended. Historical tradition says that Isaiah was martyred by Hezekiah's son, the wicked king Manasseh, who is said to have sawn Isaiah in two. There may be reference to Isaiah in Hebrews 11 when it talks about the heroes of the faith. Now earlier, we studied the lives of Elijah and Elisha. They served in the northern kingdom under idolatrous kings there. That northern kingdom was idolatrous from the start. It never turned back to God. And during Isaiah's lifetime, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and took Israel captive. It was God's judgment on their perpetual idolatry. The southern kingdom lasted over a century longer, taken into Babylonian captivity in three successive waves between 605 and 585 B.C. But Israel's going to captivity with Assyria was a warning to the southern tribe of what was going to happen to them if they didn't turn. It was also God's judgment on idolatry that Judah was sent into Babylon. And interestingly enough, after coming back from the captivity, you, you don't see any more a major problem with idolatry among the Israelites. Jeremiah would be ministering during that critical time, just before and during um, being taken into captivity. So Isaiah prophesies at a time of clear and present danger to a nation heading toward disaster, but not quite there yet. I'd like to quote from our series in Isaiah back in 2016, 
the opening message, it was now a country sliding into the very crimes against humanity that doomed the civilization before. Still blessed, still wealthy, but with festering corruption and hence a growing uneasiness that disaster lurked on the horizon. Powerful nearby nations, superpowers of the ancient world, threatening not just their sovereignty, but their very survival. Into the middle of such a people, at such a time, appeared a man, possibly of royal blood, but more importantly chosen by God, to bring a message of warning and hope to a nation sliding toward the brink of doom. His name means the salvation of Yahweh, standing midway between the great prophet leader Moses and the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets and the evangelist of the Old Testament. His prophetic addresses start with Jerusalem and then radiate to the entire earth. He speaks not just of sin and judgment, but of a coming Savior and a universal King that will not only restore the fortunes of Israel beyond anything they enjoyed before, but will draw to himself all the nations of the world to be rescued from the plague of their souls and the doom of the race. So that's Isaiah. I want to talk tonight about the man and his message. The man and his message. First, the man. We're introduced to the man. You know, Isaiah isn't just prophecies. It also has some historical narrative in it. In, it. in Isaiah 6, we have the historical narrative of his call. And we see that Isaiah was called by God, but before he could carry out his mission, he had to be sanctified. And we read these words in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, which is their angelic beings. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. By the way, host refers to God being the the Lord of armies, and so he's one that's going to bring judgment or deliverance with those, those armies. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook. There's a voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, the way we talk comes from who we are inside. And so Isaiah realized his own evil of heart from the way he used his mouth. And God was going to purge his mouth so that it might be used for good instead of evil. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Before we can ever minister to other people, we have to see God for who he really is and see ourselves for who we really are. A prophet was supposed to hear from God and then speak to people. So it was important that he have a clear vision of God and really a clear vision of himself as that mediator as he gives to other people. If we would be evangelists of our own time, sharing the good news, it's important that we are also sanctified, that we have been purged from our sin. 
atonement's been made. We've seen ourselves for what we really are, and then God can use us. We also see that Isaiah, the man, was not just sanctified, he was sent. And so we find in the very next verse, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. You're going like, wait a minute now. Who wants to go into ministry knowing that it's going to be like that? It's going to be like that. But Isaiah's fruitfulness wasn't confined to just his own generation. There were those that would listen to his message. There was a remnant in his own time. But think about it. Tonight, we're looking at words of Isaiah. And when we look at some of the prophecies, some of the prophecies that he gave are some of the best-known words in all of human language. The, the impact of his being sent is still being felt. So as we are sent, as we bear the gospel, we've had a genuine encounter with God and we've been perched. Don't think that we're going to share the gospel, that our goal is just success. If, if success is what you have to have, like people listening, for you to be happy with being called to do this, and you are called to do this if you're a believer, then you're going to be perpetually disappointed, occasional high spots. But, but there's a lot that's, that's, that's tough. Just like Nick shared earlier, think about how often the gospel was given and, and Nick was dull of hearing. That doesn't mean he always will be. And we, we see God rescue him. And sometimes what God does is he, he plants words of truth and of the gospel in a person's heart that don't bear fruit for a decade or half a century later. It, it's happened before, it will happen again. You never know when the light is actually going to go on. A sower goes forth to sow with the Word of God. He sows. Some of it bears fruit immediately. Some does not. But it will bring a harvest that God's going to give. Well, as, as Isaiah is sent, one of the per, first examples we have of his being sent to someone is to the wicked king Ahaz, in Isaiah 7. And basically the message of Isaiah 7 is to King Ahaz, who's worried about armies that are coming against him. Isaiah says, don't fear the invader, trust Yahweh instead. Now Ahaz is a wicked king. He worships idols. He doesn't want to trust Yahweh. He doesn't want to be beholden to Yahweh. And so you know, when Isaiah asks, says, ask a sign of the Lord in heaven above or in the earth beneath, he says, oh, I'm not going to do that. He tries to act real pious. But the reality is he doesn't want to have to serve Yahweh. And that's when Isaiah gives that beautiful prophecy of the Messiah that a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son, and his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. We also see in the historical section of Isaiah the work that he did in going to the righteous king, Hezekiah, in Isaiah 36 to 39, that's all historical narrative. 
And the basic message to King Hezekiah that we see is that Yahweh will deliver you. He will deliver you from the Assyrians who were besieging the city of Jerusalem, and he will deliver you from terminal illness. He restored Hezekiah to life. So this was Isaiah the man. Let's talk about his message. Uh, Alec, I don't even know how you say his last name, M-O-T-Y-E-R, however you say that name. Um, and, you know, probably if I wanted to sound sophisticated, I'd say Modier or something like that, but, or i just call him Motyer. Um I don't know. But he's got probably one of the best commentaries on Isaiah um, that is available, as well as uh, on James and some other things. But he breaks down the whole book of Isaiah this way as a messianic portrait of the king in 1 through 37, of the servant in 38 to 55, and of the anointed conqueror in 56 to 66. I just give that to you as a, another way to, to organize the book. But what I want to do tonight is just give you seven different themes that you find in the book with some representative passages. Now, the passages I'm going to put beside each of these themes is not the only place it shows up. It's just one of the places that it shows up, or maybe where it's first introduced. Um, it's actually woven throughout the book. Um, so, but I think it will help us to think about the message of the book in terms of these themes. The first theme that hits you right between the eyes, right in Isaiah chapter 1, is a sinful people. And then God moves directly in Isaiah 2 and 3 into a holy judge. He'll come back to that over and over again. In Isaiah 4, we're introduced to the Messiah, called the branch in this case, and then there'll be much more about him in subsequent chapters. Where we see the sovereign Lord who has complete control over all nations and complete control over the course of history. And ironically, or maybe not ironically, significantly, his sovereignty and, and his work as the mighty Savior, they're blended together. In, in those chapters, 40 to 45, he talks about sovereignty, but he talks about saving at the same time. He's the mighty Savior for all the world. He's sovereign over all the world. Therefore, he has the power to save everyone, anyone in all the world who will turn to him. And then in number six is you have the certain, a certain hope, particularly as you track toward the end of the book. You see more and more of this theme, although it's very early on as well. And then there is multiple times through the book, there is a worldwide invitation, and perhaps one of the most eloquent is in Isaiah 55. So let's just track through this book this way on these themes. And again, my goal is to uh, hopefully whet your appetite for getting into Isaiah and spending some significant time there. First, he presents a sinful people in Isaiah 1. <coughs> Isaiah 1, 4 to 6. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it. 
but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Here's a sinful people that have rebelled against the Lord, and it's to their own hurt. It's really important for us to understand. You know, a lot of people think that when we talk about sin and we talk about God's moral law and our accountability to him, that, that we're just talking about rules. But remember, if we sum up all the law and the prophets and what they say, what is the main command? You can say it out loud. What's the main command? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second great command? Love your neighbor as yourself. So all those commands have to do with how you express love to God and how you express love to other people. And sins are the opposite of expressing that love. Well, love does good toward a neighbor. Therefore, sin does harm. And one of the most helpful things that I've found to help me fight against sin is to remember sin is not just wrong. Sin is harmful. It harms me. It harms others. There's a cost. There's a price to be paid whenever I sin. And that's exactly what we see right at the beginning of Isaiah, a sinful people. And then related to that is a holy judge. It's not like people are going to get away with this. In Isaiah 2 and 3, uh, you see this emphasis of God's judgment. And so Isaiah 2, verses 10 through 12, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts, remember, Lord of armies, has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Sometimes we fret about evildoers. We fret uh, about sin. Remember that nobody gets away with anything. Nobody gets away with anything. Either your sin is paid for by Jesus or it will be paid for by you. And God, the holy judge, is the one that will exact payment and has the absolute power to make sure that it happens. You know, we could, we could save ourselves a lot of fretting, a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness if we would just let God be God. Turn over wrath to him because we're not, we're not good about really judging accurately and let God be the judge. But it's also important for us not to think that because we're not experiencing great judgment now that we never will if we're not right with God. The fact that this is coming is really important the fact that God is a holy judge. Early on, Isaiah starts talking about the coming Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior uh, of the world. In Isaiah 4, verses 2 through 6, we see the first mention of him. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. There's a branch, the branch, that language speaks of that branch from the Davidic line. Um, and, and as you read through Isaiah, you see that the nation will seem to have been destroyed, but from the nation will grow this coming deliverer. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem, remember the Lamb's Book of Life, and the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment, by a spirit of burning. 
Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, smoke and shining of fire by night, recalling the wilderness years when God was with his people leading them. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from heat and for a refuge, a shelter from the storm and rain. And this shelter brought by the branch is a shelter that the the coming Messiah is going to provide. And so the famous um, prophecy to King Ahaz uh, that we often hear at Christmas time, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, a miraculous um, miracle with a message. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A child was going to be born that would be God with us. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born. We don't expect deliverance from a child, but that's the way he's going to come. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Nothing could be more clear that there is a child savior coming, a Messiah, anointed one, who would be all that our, our hearts need and would bring about a golden age um, as he rules over his kingdom. Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. In other words, that family line of Jesse, that was David's father, will seem to have been cut off. But a shoot's going to come up from that. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So you have a shoot and you have the root. Jesus, the Messiah, the, the God the Son, the God-man, is both the root and the fruit of David the king. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. By the way, Messiah means the anointed one. He's anointed with the spirit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall judge, not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. In other words, he's not going to be fooled. You can't play tricks with his eyes or with his ears. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So Isaiah establishes what all the Old Testament does, but Isaiah does it so beautifully that there's this coming kingdom and this coming king, the Messiah. Isaiah talks about a sovereign Lord. Isaiah 40, who has measured, tell me, and I'm going to ask you what song we sing that quotes from this chapter. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in the measures and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Anybody know what song it is? Behold our God. We're singing it at the end. By the way, the reason we sang Glorious Light at the beginning is because the themes you see in that 
uh, song are very much the themes of Isaiah pointing to the coming light. Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. This is a sovereign Lord. And you see as these chapters develop, how he predicts the future, even calls uh, Cyrus by name. Uh, long before Cyrus even existed, calls him by name and says that he's going to free his people from Babylonian captivity. Number five, we see in these same chapters, and of course the, the amazing chapter 53, a mighty Savior. In Isaiah 45, after talking about his sovereignty and his control of, of everything in contrast to idols, he says, turn to me, you know, on the basis of that, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. By the way, Philippians 2 quotes that about Jesus. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified, and shall glory. And then these haunting words from Isaiah 53. It's striking that in the synagogues uh, today, um, they never read this chapter. There's a reason they don't. In fact, many, many a Jew that has come to faith in Jesus as his Messiah, when he was first presented Isaiah 53, thought it was from the New Testament. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. A mighty Savior. And then there's a certain hope. And particularly in Isaiah 60 to 66, we see this theme recurring. Isaiah 60, 1 and 2, Arise, shine, for your light has come, glorious light. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness of peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Isaiah 61 one through three, these are the words with which Jesus began his ministry in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus stopped his reading in the synagogue at Nazareth at that point, but the prophecy goes on. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor... In the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And then these words, 
from Isaiah 65 that actually foreshadow the new heaven and new earth and the eternal life that we're going to have. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And so as dark as certain portions of Isaiah are, there is this light of certain hope that runs through its pages and points us to a coming age. And then Isaiah 55, a worldwide invitation. There are invitations throughout the book, but this is perhaps one of the most eloquent. Isaiah 55, 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You can't afford what God is giving. But he's giving it without your paying anything. He paid the price. And so he says in verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You can see why Isaiah would be called the evangelist of the Old Testament. The man was sanctified and sent. It was not an easy kind of ministry. He was sent to many people who turned a deaf ear, but yet his word of hope, of warning and hope, still rings today. His message was that of a sinful people, a holy judge, a coming Messiah, a sovereign Lord, a mighty Savior, a certain hope. And he leaves us with a worldwide invitation. May God help us to be giving that invitation to our world. May we be the evangelist of our time, giving the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and thank you for this book of Isaiah, and thank you for the man that you used in such a mighty way. We thank you that you're still using him today. And Lord, help us not, help us not despise a day of small things. A lot of our opportunities seem so very small. Our own lives are small. And yet, God, you daily give us opportunity to live for you, to bring you praise, to point people toward the certain hope that we find in Jesus the Messiah, our Savior and our Lord. May our lives bring praise to him and may many turn to him for it's in Christ's name.